Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, So there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Gary Forsman, MD. He's a medical doctor, an internist. He's the founder of what's called Middle Path Medicine. And we're going to talk about uh, his integrative approach to uh, cancer therapy and regenerative medicine. So, Gary, thanks for coming. It's great to be here. Yeah, if you would, tell me, uh, is your practice just clinical or is it research as well? And- it's entirely clinical practice. Uh, Middle Path Medicine has kind of been... Um, uh, well, it's actually been my business name for almost 12 years now, I think, as far as that goes. And it, kind of this approach where I do my own practice, where it's um, for quite some time, I had heard people saying, hey, you know, Western medicine says this, and they kind of point to one side and natural medicine says this. And the truth I've always found is in the middle. And obviously, in a very polarized world, uh, you know, middle path medicine is almost like a, an anomaly. Well, standard of care and everything is like, yeah. you know, I don't, it's just radiation, chemo, surgery. And there, and that's what we try to get across to people is that this is what standard of care. If you see an oncologist, these, even if you see three oncologists and they go to the best centers in the world, you're going to get basically one opinion about what to do and that there's many other ways of looking at cancer out there. So what, uh, what, what is your approach? How do you look at uh, cancer? 
Well, you know, and I know you're, well, I shouldn't say I know this. I, I've looked at a few of the, the podcasts and you've had uh, Thomas Seafried on and the metabolic approaches to cancer. And I think that is a part of the answer to, to looking at how do we look at this disease we call cancer and how do we transcend some of the thoughts, both in Western medicine and also you see the same world in, in the natural medicine world too, where if you go to an integrative cancer conference, if you want to start a fight, just start talking about diet, you know, or a bunch of natural people. People that we're, you know, we're so attached to our approaches that sometimes we don't bring the person into the conversation. So in terms of my approach to, to integrative cancer therapies is that the person is there to make the choice about how to approach their cancer. And sometimes that means a more Western approach than I would do. Sometimes it means a, even a more natural approach when I think a, a certain form of uh, targeted chemotherapy for their very specific form of cancer might be the better option. So it's patient-oriented, which is really what integrative medicine is supposed to be, which is providing tools to your patients and allowing them to make better informed decisions about how to approach cancer. I mean, we can dovetail off of that, but it even comes down to to um, the diet approaches, you know. Yes. Well, in, in regards to diet, I mean, if right. you live, I don't know, 85 years, the mm-hmm. only thing that goes into your body is liquids, air, and food. So mm-hmm. how could it not affect you and all your cells? That makes no sense, oh. but I guess oh, that's the... Well, again, goes into that. There's within natural medicine, there's this basic tenant as that nutrition treats people and not diseases. And it's one of the things I really try to focus on with people because if they've come to me and they say, Gary, how do I, or Dr. Forsman or whatever they're saying, Gary, how do I approach heart disease? You know, what, what diet should I have for heart disease? Which diet should I have for cancer? For the majority of people, they're missing the point. It's which diet should I have for me? Okay. Because, you know, and we'll of course get to, to later stage cancers in just a second, but because the basic truth is nutrition treats people and not diseases. And through the transitive property, if they give the right nutrition for that person, then you will find that form of nutrition will treat that cancer. And of course, yes, as you probably are well aware, an ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure. So that form of nutrition is going to be right for them for prevention as well as treatment. And what that means is, so back to my, uh, my experience going to many, many integrative cancer conferences and this, the thing I was saying about the, the attachment that different doctors have to their dietary approaches, because they still are doctors out there in this world who are still afraid of fat, believe it or not. They think eating any fat is a cause of cancer, eating any animal protein cause of cancer. Um, of course, there's the fungal theories and a whole variety of other ones out there that, each doctor group tries to, you know, sell to their patients that you have to juice to treat cancer. You have to eat this way to treat cancer. And of course, for the majority of people, essentially they've become a, a disease so, that so happens to have a person as compared to a person who so happens to have a disease. And that's where we lose it in Western medicine, especially is we're treating diseases. We're not treat, treating humans because as you well know, each human who has any disease, and this is true for, for cancer, for heart disease, for anything, autoimmune disease, is you're really trying to diagnose the person and not diagnose the disease. And so, and of course, and this takes us to the metabolic approaches to cancer, the further you go along in a disease, the more serious a disease is, it is important to treat the disease more so than the person. Because the kind of joke goes like this. If somebody is hard to stop beating, you don't ask them what body type you are before we do CPR. We do CPR because we have to save your life. And your history is kind of irrelevant at that moment, assuming we want to well, save you. I mean, regular medicine is fine with emergency acute stuff, but you know, this is more chronic. So what? 
Correct. Again, what is your overall method for treating people? How do well, you assess them, first of all? And that's that's the part. So when they come to see you, you ask them about, this is back to the treating the individual, okay? So the most common cancer I see is um, breast cancer. And, and each of those women who, and I'm just going to use that as an example that we could obviously dovetail into other forms of cancer. Each of those people have a story behind what is their history? What is their dietary approaches so that have led to the, what they associate with this cancer? So if there are people who've come to me with any system of eating that have had breast cancer, at this point, yes. Okay. For the most part, when you look at this lady who wrote radical remissions, for the most part, you have to switch their diet because the human organism to get better has to make a change. Okay. And if you look at the idea of using ketogenic diets for everybody, especially for the people who are stressed about that kind of eating, they've grown up, they're vegans, they're, they're mm. juicers. The stress of, of changing their diet that radically can be actually make them do worse. Uh, I've seen the same approach, of course, with uh, people who are doing macrobiotics. I've seen it where I thought macrobiotics helped people, and I've seen it where it's probably killed because of the stress factor. So the idea is to ask them what is this comes into treating people. And that's what we were saying is it's a clinical practice. Uh, is the research we're doing, you know, as they say, a research with an N of one, right? Which means <laughs> each person you see is their own clinical research trial. Of course, you use data to talk to them about the best approach to their cancer. But especially when it comes to the breast cancer, you know, as there's so many societal and sexual and other implications that many women carry with this cancer that you have to ask them about that before you even get to their diet. So, you know, what is your stress levels? How are we dealing with that? Where are, where do you see this cancer coming from? And so that's the key. So I've had patients with any form of cancer, colon, breast, et cetera, where the first thing we talk about is actually their relationships and their stress levels. And yes, of course, we get to the, the dietary approach to it. My basic template for diet, I'm sure you're, you're aware, is actually I start with the, the basic paleo principles. You know, paleo diets are very straightforward. You should eat like a human because you're human. You should you should avoid processed foods and processed, you know, not just the white stuff, mm -hmm. but think, but basically foods with labels. And I do think grains are the most pro-inflammatory foods that we find in anybody. So if I can get them to cut out processed foods and inflammatory foods like grains, I actually think we've gotten the vast majority of the benefits of diet that we can get for them. That's the primary thing we do dietarily is say, listen, start with paleo. Now, and paleo is the template. You know how this is, is that people want to make dietary systems into belief systems. And we're trying to just say, hey, the paleolithic diet just is the, the basic, the perfect human diet, whatever term people are coining, coining out there is like, you should eat like a human. Tough to argue with that. You should eat real food. Tough to argue with that. Your carbs should come from fruits and vegetables because the biological response modifiers known as carotenoids and bioflavonoids and oligomeric proanthocyanidins and all the other cool things that make fruit and vegetables so interesting to the human that talk to your genes. Those are the things you need to help fight off cancer. So get, you know, locally grown organic foods and you will be talking to your gene profile, helping your immune system function and helping with the, this program cell death thing that we talk so much about with uh, people with cancer. And that's how you really get to it because, you know, is keto the right diet for everybody or it really isn't, but it's a great diet when you have stage three and four cancers, because now you're getting towards treating the cancer more so than treating the person. For most people, we're treating the person more so than the cancer. What do you think about, um, what is what is diet affecting? I mean, I know it's kind of a strange mm -hmm. question, but why, right. if I eat something processed or if I eat grains, right. 
Why does it right. inflame me? Why does right. it not work well with me versus something unprocessed? What do you think at a you know biochemical level right. is happening? What's the difference? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Well, again, obviously there's multiple, multiple levels of answers to your question. So let's start with the kind of simplest thing. So, you know, processed white foods. So talking about things with high glycemic responses and high insulin responses. So the first thing you're looking at is I'm sure you're well aware is that the, the PET scan is using a tagged glucose molecule. And we do know that the cancer has radically increased, you know, depending on the cancer from 10 to 40 fold increases in insulin receptors and glucose receptors. So we know that the fuel for cancer is primarily the glucose molecule that we need. I should say we need as well, which we can run on as well. But we do know that radical shifts in our sugar and in our insulin levels, sugar serves as a rapid fuel for cancer and the increase in insulin. Most people out there know that insulin's primary job isn't to lower blood sugar. Insulin's primary job is to, is to store the sugar somewhere. Okay. And that's usually in fat, which is the primary thing we're concerned about in terms of long-term cancerous, but also is used to help get the high insulin receptors with the increase in insulin will make sure that the tissue with the highest level of insulin receptors will actually consume more glucose. And this of course is going to be the cancer cells. So the first level of that is if we cut out processed sugars, then we are doing a huge benefit for the person's overall health and especially, you know, decreasing one of the fuel sources for the cancer. The other side of it really kind of comes from all the toxic things that we find within our food supply. But the main thing I would be concerned about are the, the excitotoxins, the glutamates and the, the monosodic glutamates, the, uh, all of the excitotoxic, um, artificial sweeteners that people shoot for. You'll probably find this in the, I found this in so many of my keto patients is they're, they're, they found from some quote unquote authority that to use these things with tons of artificial sweeteners, which are absolutely, you know, horrible for human health. And we've got to treat the person too. And so, so if we can just cut out. uh, When people say that, you know, artificial sweeteners are fine, are they just looking at the glycemic response and nothing else? Like that's it. Where do you find the toxicity and where do you not? You know, I think Blaylock, you know, did the book on excitotoxins, the taste that kills, I think was the subtitle to that. But, you know, and he had a lot of good research on, on that. The problem comes is that people are learned to be so afraid of sugar that they don't look for almost anything else. And you'll, I had a next door neighbor who just showed me, does your little baby, I have a two and a half year old at home, uh, by the way. And does he want a pops? Yeah. Does he want a popsicle? And it's like, well, you know, as you can imagine, I said, well, what's in that popsicle? And she goes, well, it's sugar free and it's gluten free and it's fat free. And of course, at no, no popsicle should have ever, ever had, you know, fat or anything else like that. And the, the label is what I'm 
you know, this lady who was trying to be nice, you know, showed all this, you know, the artificial colors, the artificial sweeteners. And it was like a popsicle should have fruit juice, water, and maybe some citric acid as a preservative. So people have become so stuck on the sugar-free thing and that what it doesn't have that they don't even look for what's in there, right? And so, and I see this even for my my cancer patients, like, well, I'm using this bar from wherever. And, and I say, let me look at the bar. And they haven't looked at all the processed ingredients in there. So, you know, that's takes us back to that basic tenet of doctor help me read the food label. And the answer is, if it has a label, it's probably not a food. And so, but back to your, your question, which is, you know, does our body have the ability to process the level of chemicals that we're putting into it? And I just think it's, it goes back to the same thing that we find in placental blood and embryo, you know, the umbilical cord blood is there's so many levels of toxins in our environment that are reaching it into our body that I don't think it knows how to process. And so the, I want to be clear. What are the consequences of this? So if you let's just take this back to the breast cancer. If you look at the studies in mainly from Europe that look at breast cancer risk, it's total xenoestrogen burden, which is the greatest predictor of risk for breast cancer. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Now, most of those xenoestrogens are coming in topically, right? Xenoestrogens are coming in, but they're coming in from the plastics that we're drinking from our water bottles. They're coming in from our cosmetics. So xenoestrogens are the leading predictor of why a woman gets breast cancer because it's a toxin that your body will store in the fat cells and the breast is the canary canary in the coal mine of toxicity. It'll store these toxins next to a metabolically active tissue known as the the mammary tissues. And that's why I think the breast is actually the canary in the coal mine of toxicity. So this toxic burden, this organic, which is why we're trying to get people to have an organic lifestyle, whether that's food, but also cosmetics and bath care products, et cetera, that I- Can you give me some names of, first of all, artificial sweeteners? I know we can't name all of them, but a few predominant ones that have been- Sucro- and then xenoestrogens too. Okay. So sucralose, acesulfame, and aspartame are the classic, you know, artificial sweeteners to avoid. Uh, saccharin was a bugaboo over there for quite some while, right? But saccharin probably has less of a toxic effect than the ones that replaced it, which are sucralose, acesulfame, and aspartame, you know? And so those are the artificial sweeteners to avoid. Xenoestrogens really are not going to be listed under the food ingredients, but they'll find anything that's basically that you're heating or cooking in plastics. And, and again, the plastic water bottles, that's the BPA and the BPS. Okay. And be very clear, BPA-free water bottles, meaning plastic bottles, usually have another xenoestrogen known as BPS, which is maybe mildly less toxic than BPA. The rest of the xenoestrogens you'll find in the families, you'll find actually in your cosmetic products and usually are in the families that they call the fragrances and the the parabens, which have xenoestrogenic activity. And so that's, those are the things that you're trying to avoid from a prevention standpoint, but obviously this goes into, you know, an organic lifestyle that we're trying to promote for people. Let this diagnosis of cancer make a shift in your awareness where you know that what you put into your body topically and or orally makes a huge difference in how you feel first and foremost, but also liberates your body's neurological function, immune system function that are responsible for the recognition and elimination of things like cancers. Okay. If you, for some reason or another, cancer won't eliminate the insults to your body, but you try to make it up by having good things, I don't know, bone broth, supplementation, exercise, etc. Is there much of an effect or 
if you don't remove the bad stuff going in, are you kind of hobbling your ability to get healthy? Yeah, that's obviously a great question. I mean, you know, the my one of my foundations of health I do for people is an hour a day for healthy exercise, an hour a day for meditation, an hour a day for food and food preparation, which as you can imagine, the meditators will tell you an hour a day for, uh, for excuse me, for meditation, it's not enough. The exercisers will tell you that uh, that's not enough time for exercise. And of course, the chefs in my practice will tell you an hour a day for food and food preparation, time for eating, not nearly enough. So it it's it's an interesting question because so many people want to solve everything through diet or through exercise or through those meditative practices. And you actually to be well, I mean, this is preventive medicine wise to be well, you have to do all these. And that's why when, especially with something as serious as most cancers, tell them healing is a full-time job. You know, if they're willing to take time away from work, I will, you know, write for their ability to use, you know, to go through treatments. And by the way, when I say treatments, I'm not talking about chemotherapy. Usually I'm talking about taking the time for food and food preparation and taking the time for exercise this return to the the yin side of medicine, uh, meaning the inward stroke, which is so powerfully important. And, and so do I think most people can heal when they just want to put all their their eggs in the preferably one basket, meaning I'm just going to focus on exercise and the dietary things aren't as important. Not for something as serious as cancer. I think they have to work on all levels, but they can do it with a form of joy about knowing how how what they're doing is so important for themselves, how they can do with a sense of more more music in their life and more other things. So you tell them, you shift their awareness to things that are fulfilling them in ways that they thought that their foods were and their too much TV and all the other things that they were filling their lives with. So you have make sure that they're filling their lives with other things, not just taking things away. Because that's the, the imbalance, especially younger doctors. And that includes me. Well, that you includes somebody who used to be me. I'm not a younger doctor anymore. And so we get so caught up in the things we tell them to do. Usually it's a, like I said, eliminate xenoestrogens. And then you say, hey, what does that mean? And you say, well, these are organic. And you lead them towards things that they do, organic skincare products that are good, et cetera. So as compared to just taking away your, the body soap that you used to use. And so, uh, so do, to answer your question directly, I think you really have to make shifts on all levels to get the healing that I'm looking for. Because my patients who have these radical remissions from cancer usually found that there was a, they bought in, done what they they need to do to make the shifts in all levels because they realize healing is something deeper than just changing a diet, just changing an exercise pattern, taking up a stress management program or a meditation program. So it's really about doing all the above. When you say all in, is it any more important if someone has stage one or two versus three or four? Like how much of a difference is there? What you need to do? Correct. I mean, so stage four, you have to buy in. I'm just going to say stage three and four have, you know, for most of the cancers we're dealing with, inclu- including the, the, the breasts and prostates and colons and the things that the common doctor of integrative cancer therapies like me sees that they don't make the shifts. They aren't going to make it. And the worst scenario is they don't do anything and they, they want the doctor to heal them. So they go to the oncologist and this could be a radiation oncologist, a, a medical oncologist, and they 
say, ah, diet doesn't matter. And of course, since they're an oncologist, they're going to listen to them. They're a cancer specialist, right? And so sort of not want to change their diet because they hear, oh, gosh, diet doesn't really matter. My oncologist said so, or my radiation oncologist said so. And so the, if they have stage three or four cancers, then the doctor is supposed to heal you, right? That's the current medical model that I give right. you chemotherapy and I heal you. And it's, it's sort of like when we were watching Alex Trebek go through his thing with pancreatic cancer and you saw, because chemotherapy is really good at knocking off 99% of cancer cells sometimes. It's just that it makes the remaining cells even more aggressive. So he'll go online and tell everybody my numbers are down to nothing. And you know, as an integrative cancer doctor that he's getting this advice. I don't know what else he did, but I know he was getting chemo and he's making the underlying cancer more aggressive. And he has this illusion of success because that's what people are looking for. My, my CAT scan looks better. My tumor antigen looks better. And chemotherapy, I'll be honest with you, almost always does that. Okay. And so, but what you've done is selected out essentially what amounts to being a more aggressive cancer. And it comes back with even more full force. And therefore the, the treatment really made no difference in the long-term survival. But if you wanted to look at six months, wow, it's pretty cool. So yeah, same thing with uh, Rush Limbaugh. He just passed and he had lung right. cancer, I guess, same thing. Right, exactly. And you said short-term success. I, I followed Alex Trebek more than I did the, uh, than the run, than Rush Limbaugh. But, uh, so that, that I can see and from the outside, at least like, I looked a little bit. And so, but, but people are, they're drawn in with this short-term success thing, which chemotherapy almost always does. Radiation therapy almost always does. And so, and then they think, gosh, I don't have to do anything to heal myself. I just can let the doctor heal me. And that's kind of when Western medicine has them, why we've made almost no progress progress in terms of survival, because we do the, I'm sure you know, the cut, burn and poison approach to, to cancer. And the person essentially feels that there's nothing they can do because they've been told by the medical authorities, like you were saying earlier, the standard of care, there's nothing you need to do. I can cut, burn or poison this out of you. And it's an easy passive approach because who really wants to feel like they have to change their diet? Who feels like they really need to deal with stress management? Yeah, you know, it's, so it's, it's weird. I mean, how could, how could radical surgery and chemo? I mean, I guess people don't know unless they, until they've done it, but before doing it versus after doing it after I would, I would think they're much more amenable now to doing diet and everything because it's been so tough and so nasty to have this stuff done. You would think so. But, you know, the other side of things is I do see people. So doctors like me who do the integrative cancer therapies, uh, very often the person I will see has been through every round of chemo, surgery, whatever else. And I'm unfortunately left with a shell of a human being left. And then they say, well, now since my doctor said there's nothing else I can do, what can you do for me? And that's not the phase you want to catch people at. Okay. And so those people usually I'm talking more about, you know, acceptance and end of life care because they, the time to like right now, I'm, you know, writing articles about a lot to do with coronavirus and how you need to treat as soon as you even think you have it. Even if you don't, you got to get ahead of this one because you have about 48 hours to treat a coronavirus. And that's obviously you have much more time with cancer, but the same thing goes. If you really want to use natural therapies early on is better than later on. And that's true for almost everything. And, and obviously including coronavirus for that matter. And even like I was 
you know, in the coronavirus world, people, it's like really D and melatonin and IV vitamin C and other things would work. And the answer is yes, but they're always searching for a hydroxychloroquine or an ivermectin. Heck, even in the cancer world, a lot of people are searching for different drugs. And they say, well, I don't want to do chemotherapy, but can you put me on metformin, a statin, you know, mebendazole, these other drugs that are used as well. And I'll, of course, I consider those drugs too, but they're just shifting which form of drug therapy they want because all drugs are chemos, right? And so it's a different form of drug therapy slash chemotherapy, but just different. When you say all drugs are chemos, right? you mean to say all drugs will push the tumor in a direction of being more aggressive and not kill all of it and predispose it <laughs> to being worse? The, uh, great. And thank you for asking me to clarify. The statement really comes down to is what doctors, what MDs are taught to do is the drug form of therapy for anything. Okay. So everything we do is a, a drug or a chemical. Okay. So, so the, the class is saying is all medicines are poisons. It's just a matter of the dosage. And that's true for a blood pressure pill. That's true for a cholesterol pill. That's true for a diabetes medicine. Okay. And so, but the term that people use chemo out there is usually meant for cytotoxic chemotherapy, meaning drugs that essentially treat growth. Okay. So that, that's what we talk about as being chemo, chemotherapy is, is these drugs that are used specifically for cancer. But what they don't realize is every single form of medicine we use is a poison of some system, whether it's poisoning a certain enzyme involved in affecting your blood pressure or some other things. So, so whenever you walk into an MD's office, you're essentially asking for poison. Okay. And most people aren't aware of that. No, I thought you were just going to talk to me about diet and exercise for my blood pressure. Nope drug every time because you went to the drug specialist. So when I was saying cancer specialists really aren't, I actually don't think I completed that thought. They're really not cancer specialists. The, the standard oncologist is a specialist and using poisons to treat cancer. Okay. And they actually very rarely, actually, they usually don't even know about the off-label uses of other drugs, chemo, other forms of chemos, meaning other drugs as an alternative way of treating cancer. They're used to only using chemotherapy. And I'm not bagging on chemotherapy specialists. I'm just, what I'm telling you is something you're probably aware of is that an oncologist is not a cancer specialist. An oncologist is a chemotherapy specialist, okay? And that means they should know more about chemotherapy than you or I do, which of course they do. And so, but they're not a cancer specialist because, and how do we know this? Because they don't talk to the person about stress or nutrition or exercise. I mean, there are studies showing exercise especially for colon cancer, is far better than most of the chemotherapy regimens, okay? But do the, does the cancer specialist really talk to them and, and really get them straight to a therapist for exercise? No, because there's nobody, there's no lobby for exercise. There is lobby for chemos, okay? And so so that's why we're trying to get across to people. And that's one of the benefits of, of the podcast such, such as yourself is letting people know that, that, hey, the reality of dealing with cancer is if I went into this MD's office, I'm actually really specifically asking for chemotherapy, not advice about how to treat it from any other mechanism. And as long as we understand that, because this is true for every other doctor visit that anybody has with an MD, is they're going into the MD for some form of chemotherapeutic intervention. Okay. Now, whether that's a blood pressure pill or an antibiotic or whatever else, even for 
if it's not cancer, but it's especially true in the cancer world because what happens when somebody gets the diagnosis of cancer from a standard MD as the standard family practice doctor or the standard internist, which is kind of my basic training, turfs you to the oncologist, meaning I wash my hands free of you. You're going over there. You're going to talk to the cancer specialist and the cancer specialist is going to involve anything to do with your care. And that's too bad because essentially you lost your one of your best advocates, which should be your primary care doctor. And now you're uh, free in the world and your only advice comes from the chemotherapy doctor. And it says, exercise doesn't matter. Stress doesn't matter. All that matters is I give you chemotherapy, meaning healing only comes through the MD, which is a good business model, not a good, not a good treatment model. And so, and essentially we have you in the system. Okay. And so, and this is the toughest thing for people to hear because you want to believe in your doctor, but the key is I'm trying to get them to believe in the actuality of what they are is believe in your chemotherapy specialist that, that he'll give you the, he or she will give you the best chemotherapy available for your cancer. But that's it. That's all you will get from them, okay? Because anything else about nutritional approaches, supplementary approaches, that doctor just doesn't know. So you better actually go somebody else to somebody else to take care of you. Why is a, um, a primary care physician that says, hey, go see this person, goodbye, have a nice day? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they would be an advocate, but I guess, yeah. you know, if you were in this situation, you would, when the person said, I'm going to the oncologist, Right. You would say, I guess what, I'm going to stay with you, though, because I can provide some insights that they may not have. Correct. You do differently. That's definitely what I do differently because I, you know, I tell anybody with a, a diagnosis like cancer, they, that, that, that gives them a jolt of fear. Okay. And, um, they want to know that they're getting the best of Western medicine. There's no reason why I wouldn't want them to have that viewpoint, but I try to get across to them that it's a limited viewpoint system. It's meaning it's, these are the chemotherapeutic and or radiation therapies and or surgical therapies that we use in Western medicine. If any of these people really looked at all the other data, they'd realize we have not made much progress in, in, in treating this and they would look somewhere else too. Okay. And I mean, everybody, um, the guy who wrote the emperor of all maladies, uh, he did a great job. Uh, his last name is Mukherjee. Um, it won a Pulitzer prize. I think mm. he does a great review of the, you know, how we used to look at surgical oncology, how we used to look at uh, radiation oncology, et cetera, and how, how Western medicine has been shaped by this. And even though this guy is an, a medical oncologist, his big hope these days is we won't use standard chemotherapy. Everything will be targeted chemotherapy. That also has its limitations. But he grew up in a system that everything is chemotherapy. So of course he wants to believe in it. So so when I talk to people about Western medicine, because most MDs really are considered basically like high priests of the Western medical belief system. They really don't practice medicine anymore. They practice a belief in, in drugs or surgery or whatever they're doing. And so that's what I find the step, the average MD to be is somebody as, who's become a high priest or priestess of Western medicine, which is a very dangerous thing because they're using a belief system to treat people. I believe in drugs as compared to the actuality of all the things that we can do to treat cancer, including nutrition. It's, it's a very interesting thing because across the world, people are more open about all kinds of therapies because usually if you have something like cancer, everybody, I don't, if it's mainland China, they're going to say, well, if that you have cancer, let's look at everything. And from, from herbs to diet to, to spiritual practices and, and including chemo, if you're seeing the Western version of the, the Chinese mis, uh, medicine physician. And so we're looking at what are my best options? 
And we're looking at it from a much more holistic standpoint, whereas in in America, that's where I know the most about, obviously. This is true from what I've seen from Canada and Europe as well, too, in terms of doctors that I, I know from those areas, is that it's a very limited form of therapy. And so it's... How do you deal with patients that, uh, I mean, do you have to, so if someone comes to you and they have cancer... Mm-hmm. Do you have to give them the standard of care? Do you have to offer it? Are you going to get yourself in trouble by not? I mean, what's well, in that's terms of, you know, the great, que- great question. And, and what I would tell you is that the yes, I actually make it clear to them because it's part of most people's belief system. Say, listen, this is the name of an oncologist. And usually it'll be, go like this. This is an oncologist that isn't too afraid of the things I do as compared right. to being a supporter of it, right? So you need, to, uh, you need to work with doctors at least aren't afraid of natural therapies, which in the oncology world, trust me, is very difficult. Um, so these doctors, this is a radiation oncologist that knows what I do. This is a, a chemotherapy doctor. You need more information. You want to know and your family wants to know that you're getting the best of Western medicine, but here are the limitations. And this is where you have to be careful, Richard, because, you know, if you take people's belief in their doctor away that, and they think the doctor is the only thing that can heal them, you've actually kind of screwed them up a little bit, right? And so you, it's a fine line to play. So the answer is, I do this from a, a standpoint of, of, yes, you need to see an oncologist to get their ideas about and get their data points because they should know some more data points. Maybe there's a new chemotherapy uh, routine that I have not heard of that has had an increased success in their type of tumor. They need to hear about those things. And so is there a liability issue from most doctors, and of course for me as well too. But the reason I would tell you that I tell people to see an oncologist is they want to get more data. And the oncologist should know more about chemotherapy than I do, but they better, right? But you're correct for many, the turfing from the primary care doctor is usually the liability things. They don't want anything to involve um, with treating the person with cancer because it's such a scary diagnosis and and people might get mad at me if I try, try anything that isn't standard of care. Whereas my experience is that standard of care is usually what tells me what I shouldn't be doing. So so I have to look at it a much different is that the people have to be aware of what standard of care is, but they have to be smart enough to know that there's little piece fragments of truth within it, right? And so, you know, as a typical example, it's like my patients who take the statin drugs. Statin drugs work in the face of especially secondary prevention and treating cardiovascular disease. So there is a role for them. However, just lowering everybody's cholesterol is a horrifically bad strategy using those drugs, but that's what standard of care says to do out there. So, and what does that have to do with chemotherapy, with um, oncology is because for decades now through online, uh, through advertising on TVs, people have started to believe that the only thing they can do for treating anything is a drug. Okay. And so, uh, and, and if you start to go that way, but before you know it, you're part of a populace that the only thing I can do to treat a cancer is a drug. And if you believe in that you know, firmly enough, if your voodoo is anything that isn't drugs, then you have to be careful because anything I do would be there for voodoo. Okay. And so, so you have to work within that person's belief system. That's why it's so important for everybody out there to be looking at improving our ability to see reality, which is a combination of book smarts with a wisdom tradition of some form of meditation. So you can see things how they are, because most people don't seem to be able to extract or discern from if they're even reading, if they don't seem to be able to, to grasp that knowledge and, and, and just, when I say discern, 
toss out the stuff that doesn't seem to be real and bring in the stuff to them that is important and real because there's, there is crap within everybody's medical system, whether it's Ayurvedic medicine or it's Western medicine. And there's, there's pieces we have to extract out of all of them to find something closer to the truth. So what kind of, I know everyone's different. I know every mm-hmm. situation is different, but are there any stories that stand out at you? that are interesting that you can talk about. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, every, cause remember the, the doctors who write the books about these and the ones who do most of the lecturing, usually they'll do some best of their kind of their greatest hits, right. You know, cause you wouldn't do your, your stories of the person who came to saw, see you. And then, you know, it was in months was, was dead, you know, yeah, you know, because that happens to everybody who treats patients with cancer. Okay. And so it, it's a hard profession. That's another part of this things too, is that there's dealing with people with these, you know, illnesses is actually quite tough on my staff, me as well too, by the way. So of course there's, you have these great stories. Okay. So cancer doesn't grow too fast. It dies too little. And so that's, uh, by the way, I'm quoting somebody else and I'm just blocking on who there's a lot of truth that the it's a an escape from programmed cell death was a is a huge part to many cancers, especially true for prostate, but for other cancers as well, is that they're really not growing too fast. Don't get me wrong. They are growing too fast, but that's not the primary problem. It's that they're dying too little. They've escaped some mechanism of apoptotic cell death, meaning programmed cell death, whether that's self-destruction or little signals that you send to the immune system for destruction. So there is a medicine known as low-dose naltrexone. Have you heard of that one? I've heard um, of naltrexone. Okay. I don't remember what it's so, for. So, so low-dose naltrexone has its own little you know, following out there. It's a low dose of this anti-narcotic medicine known as naltrexone. The standard dosage is four and a half milligrams nightly. Of course, it can vary quite, quite a bit. And it causes a brief suppression of endorphins and then a rebound increase in endorphins. The net effect of this medicine is to increase endorphins. Endorphins aren't just the feel-good molecules. They're important for helping with one of the mechanisms of program cell death. So the story I'm going to give you is a very wonderful lady who, for some reason, told me when I saw her that she, I was only allowed to give her two things to treat this metastatic cancer she has. It was called metastatic Merkel cell uh, tumor. It's an unusual cancer, and we don't have to get into it. But it's And I looked at the, t- the tumor type, and since she gave me this parameter, I'm only allowed two things. Basically, I told her to change one aspect of her diet. I'm sorry, when I said, uh, you know, you're at this is the one th- part of your diet I need you to change. And I'm going to give you low dose naltrexone and the low dose and, and she had this tumor everywhere in her body, multiple bone metastases, lots of bone pain within a week, her bone pain was gone. Okay. And the, and when she allowed me only to do one scan, which was within a month, she had had something like 80% tumor reduction. Um, And so now, for everybody out there listening, this is a far, far different than you'll see because I've used low-dose naltrexone and it hasn't worked in some people too. But with this type of tumor, I figured it would be very successful. Um, and it did lead to pretty much dramatic program cell death recognition by this tumor. And... And she lived for many, many years that afterwards and died uh, of congestive heart failure more than 10 years later after this uh, diagnosis. And so, so in using this one form of a, a really a low dose of a medicine, she had dramatic improvement. I, she was not, I was not allowed to do any other scans on her after about th- uh, after a few months because she had no more problems. And why would she bother scanning? This is what it's like dealing with real people, by the way, and not being part of research protocols. And so, so yes, by doing this one intervention, we had late, 
profoundly affected the course of her life. I usually will throw everything at people who have metastatic cancers, by the way. And the reason I'm using this example is because when I have successes, when people are doing intravenous vitamin C and they're using an injectable form of immunotherapy called GCMAF, and they're using other things as well, uh, and they get better, of course, you and I both know, we don't know for sure which one of those interventions worked the most. Was it that, you know, that mistletoe therapy, et cetera? So in a clinical setting, when you have especially stage three and four cancers, this of course was stage four because she had a spread throughout her body, you, you usually throw everything at them, right? You're not throwing things one at a time because that makes no sense. You have to deal with so many mechanisms of action within the cancer. You deal with this uh, improving apoptotic cell death by the way, the, the main things I use are low-dose naltrexone and melatonin. High-dose melatonin, which is 20 milligrams a night, is probably one of the most profoundly beneficial things you can give to anybody, whether they do or do not do chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Really? Um, you get, Why? Yes. Um, there's great... it would, uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it suppress your own melatonin production? Well, again, when you're dealing with life-threatening cancers, who cares? I mean, sorry, but, you know, I mean, so, and for the most part, melatonin production, let's use that as an obvious one, especially in the cases of uh, coronavirus, by the way. From age 20 to age 50, melatonin production drops 50 percent. By 70, you're barely on impulse power gone by 75. That's 75 years old people. And so I have everybody over 50 on melatonin just for prevention of disease, period, just because they were already losing their melatonin production. But the dosage of melatonin we use in treating cancer is like 20 milligrams. And it can be used much higher too, by the way. Why is that? Because there's a type one and two melatonin receptors in every cell of the body. And it's one of the, the mechanisms that you can stimulate that using extra melatonin, everybody through these melatonin receptors for stimulating this apoptotic cell death, which basically once again means uh, helping with cell self-destruction, which is a normal natural process for any, any cell that is beginning malignant transformation, I'm sorry, uh, transforming into cancer, or already is cancer. So it seems to be a mechanism that is still intact in most cancer cells. Of course, many cancer cells eventually escape many, many forms of treatment. But you use melatonin and low-dose naltrexone for just talk about it, for one mechanism of action for dealing with apoptotic cell death. It's very profoundly beneficial. And the better Nice thing about melatonin is if the person does chemotherapy or radiation therapy, you dramatically decrease the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation therapy, even though it has some antioxidant properties, which is always the big bugaboo in that world. So, so just using some simple examples is everybody who has cancer, and I'm talking about, you know, significant cancers, not just a, a simple, if somebody has a simple basal cell cancer, which is a skin cancer, cut it out and move on with your life. You know, I mean, uh, I love simple everybody. And so, but, um, but cancers are fairly complicated. And so um, if I can just work on this one area, program cell death and helping that, then the other area you really like to do is improving immune system function. And that's where the in injectable forms of therapy, whether you use uh, mistletoe therapies, which helps with natural killer cell function. I um, use a lot of stuff called M-protein, which is the GC math. It's a GC protein weighted macrophage activating factor. So we use this forms of therapies to boost immune system function. And of course, we would prefer that if the person doesn't do chemotherapy, can it even can help them if they're doing that. So we're doing things that chemotherapy can't. 
Okay, so just be clear, many people out there will choose to do standard of care because they're afraid to otherwise, or their family members said, please, please, mom, or please, dad, or please, daughter, please do these things because they believe in them. And so you have to kind of work around the fact that they're doing these treatments that often will kind of get in the way of your therapeutic success. And so, but you you do it because it's part of that person's working belief system. And so, so those are just a sampling of things that an integrative cancer specialist will start working with you in terms of helping you should you decide to do chemotherapy or not do chemotherapy because you leave that locus of control with the person. But, uh, but there's a variety of things that we do to help improve them. And we all have cases uh, where we attribute their treatment. Like for instance, I use IVC a lot and you get dramatic IVC is high dose intravenous vitamin C, everybody. And usually in combination with other forms of therapies to make it work better. And you have dramatic improvements in cancer and tumor burden. And of course, you follow this like any other doctor with uh, PET CTs, if necessary, tumor antigens are better because it's better to use the blood biopsy as they talk about. So there's so many ways we have of, of treating people that go beyond the standard of care from a Western medical standpoint. And it's, but it's a very comprehensive approach and it's supposed to be patient driven, meaning that the, somebody sees me on one day with stage three or four uh, pancreatic cancer. They should be getting similar advice, but they could very often choose different approaches to get to the same outcome. Because once again, treating the human who has the disease is what a natural medicine physician is supposed to do, whereas Western medical physicians focus treating on the disease that so happens to have the person. And sometimes both approaches are necessary, but that's why that's why there's more and more. Um, I got some certification through the um, A4M group, which is the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. They have a fellowship in integrative cancer therapies. There's other groups that do the same thing, but it's good to also, you know, align with other doctors who are doing similar things to you. So you know what's, what's out there in the world. Um, and, uh, and you also have to know what your state licensing board tell you to do and try to keep a low profile because the last thing you need is, you know, too much, you know, when you do things beyond standard of care, they sometimes become liability issues like you're asking about earlier. Um, and so you just, you got to be careful about those things. Uh, stick with things that are proven to work, have evidence about what you do working, but you know, do I always wait for double blind placebo controlled trials to work on these things? And the answer is no, because they're simply not going to be done in our country. So you've tried to find the best evidence. So, and just for the audience and for you, the doctor world uses this thing called evidence-based medicine. And you think, well, Gary, what doctor shouldn't use evidence-based medicine? Evidence-based medicine, it means if there's a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized clinical trial, that's what you should be using. And of right. course, that means that's only drugs or surgery or, or some other intervention that is supported by the current world that will you ever find that has that evidence. Therefore, evidence-based medicine means you can only use drugs or surgery. So no, you have to go beyond evidence-based medicine. You have to find the best evidence using the best safety versus risk profile of whatever intervention you're using. It, you have to be kind of motivated to look for something beyond you know, standard of care. Well, very good, Gary. We're, we're just about out of time. What's okay. the best way for people to find out more? Can you do telemedicine or do they have to be local yes. to you? And if so, where? 
I mean, as you probably imagine, the last year is it's increased <laughs> the amount of Zoom uh, meetings I've been doing, et cetera, because we used to, I personally uh, kind of old school like to see people and I like to have them in front of me and touch them and all that other stuff. And because there's something about the intuitive side of medicine that I do better in terms of seeing people, which of course has led to the Zoom meetings and things like that. So over the last year, we're doing more, you know, with people in terms of all forms of integrative medicine, in terms of treatment, you know, at a distance, so to speak, and less giving people advice. Obviously, if you want to do high-dose IV vitamin C, you have to come to someone's clinic, right? But some of these other things we can talk to people about through, through our website, which is www.middlepathmedicine.com. And so that's uh, the best place to reach me. And, and we have a um, series of articles up there on cancers, as well as a whole variety of other subjects. Um, so, but the best place to reach me is through the, through the website. Very good, Gary. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, I'm glad there's okay. people out there like you instead of just, you know, Thanks. the standard, which doesn't seem to work oh. very well. Sorry. I, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about more specific uh, subjects in the future if you so wish. And, but I was just trying to give people a general mm-hmm. feel of what a, an integrative cancer therapy doctor such as myself does is we hopefully can treat you as a person and help guide you in making decisions so you don't get mo- all of your evidence of what to do on the internet. You you try to go to a doctor who's done this and hopefully treated your form of cancer many, many times and can tell you what their successes and, and again, what their failures are too, because we're real people who've had failures as well. So, but anyways, yes, uh, thank you for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.